If you're visiting with us today, a special welcome to you. My name is Nick. I'm the senior pastor here. And it's my great privilege to open the scriptures with you this morning. So let's pray, shall we? And ask for God's help as we turn to our sermon. Heavenly Father, God, you are a great and mighty king. And you are worthy of our worship and our adoration and our praise and our submission. And we come to you now uh, in the context of these songs and this giving and these prayers. And we ask, Lord, that you would now continue to be pleased as we turn to your word. Help us to be a people who hear, to think clearly, who appropriate these things of the scriptures to our lives. Lord, be pleased as you change us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we continue in our new series that we are calling The Next Act. And we're looking at selected passages through the book of Acts with the recognition that right now in the life of our church, we are in a very unique season. We're continuing through healthy transition, ongoing transition. And there's a question that sort of lingers among us as we look to the future. And that question is this. What kind of church do you want to be? Old North. What kind of church do you want to be in this season of ministry? As you look around the landscape of churches, you will find many different churches with many distinguishing marks. We're very good at putting qualifiers or descriptors on the local church, probably way too good, whether that's based on the ethnicity that primarily makes up a church, whether it's based on the style of music, whether that's based on the type of people that they're trying to reach or who they're focusing on, or maybe it's just simply their cool factor. You can go to white churches or black churches or Hispanic churches or Asian churches or Brazilian churches or hopefully multi-ethnic churches. You can go to contemporary churches or traditional churches or seeker churches or emerging churches or postmodern churches or purpose-driven churches or simple churches, and we're just scratching the surface. You can go to church with a celebrity pastor. And some churches have celebrity pastors. This is not one of them. <laughs> We're like most churches who have average Joe as their pastor. But, you know, Christians really do like celebrities as much as the world around them. And so some churches have celebrities as their pastor. You can go to big churches or little churches or medium-sized churches. You can go to churches that meet in theaters or schools or auditoriums or traditional buildings or warehouses or cathedrals. You can go to churches that meet together on Saturday night or Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night. You can go to churches that are very good at reaching a specific demographic of people. Churches that are good at reaching older folks or middle-aged folks or young families. You can even go to churches that are almost exclusively made up of college kids. They have a hard time funding themselves. You could go to churches that are very good at reaching out to their community, others that are focused on social justice, some that put a significant amount of effort into various community-based activities. I wonder what you look for in a church. What draws you to it? You find yourself here at 
this church this morning. And I wonder what it is that brought you here. And what kind of church you want to be going forward. Turn with me to the book of Acts, will you? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, shows us the formation of the early church. And here's the setting. Jesus has gone. The Holy Spirit has come. And he is empowering and indwelling all of these new Christians. And as such, we see that the gospel is expanding through the region. More and more are coming to faith in them. And a Christian community, the church, has been formed. Let's read about that church. The next chapter starting at verse 42. This is what it says. And they, being these believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there are a number of observations we can make about this text. Many have commented at length about signs and wonders or spiritual power or communal living and the generosity that is found there. But at its core, this description of the early church shows us that worship in community Worship in the context of community is rooted at the center of Christian experience. Not just worship, but worship in the context of community is at the center of the Christian experience. And in some ways, we read a passage like this and we recognize that it is both prescriptive and descriptive. It shows us, in many ways, a raw and and functional way that the church should proceed going into the future, even our church today. And in, other, and in other ways, it's descriptive. It's fleshing out the context around and the results that occurred in that time. And as we look at the text at verse 42, I'm immediately struck by the fact that these new Christians devoted themselves to four things. To devote yourself to something is a strong expression, isn't it? means to appropriate or to concentrate on a particular pursuit. To devote yourself is much more than a casual engagement. It's much more than simple desire. To devote yourself is even more than a strong commitment. Because devotion is where 
strong desire and deep commitment come together. You rarely find someone who's devoted to something out of obligation. Strong desire is present. And you almost never find somebody who's truly devoted to something just on the basis of desire, but then casually as they go through life, they sort of touch it whenever they come near, but that's about it. No, they center their lives around the things that they're devoted to. And when I think of devotion, you can give plenty of practical examples, but two that come to mind immediately are Olympic champion Michael Phelps, who though he has struggled with his devotion over the years, spends about six hours every day in the pool. His diet consists of things to contribute to his pursuit of excellence. His lifestyle, for the most part, surrounding such activities outside of the pool, are all contributing to this pursuit, this appropriation, this goal that he has. He's devoted I also think of a cancer researcher. I think of a no-name, quiet scientist who, despite a very low-profile position in the public might ever, never hear of, continues to devote herself to a great and noble purpose with the hope that one day the results of her study will be awe-inspiring. For these early Christians, the result of their coming to an understanding of the majesty of Jesus and his world-altering and life-changing work on the cross in which he reconciled people to God by forgiving them of their sins that they would be restored into relationship with him. This one who is both Lord and Christ compels them. And as new Christians, they could have devoted themselves to any number of things but they voted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Because at their core, when we look at those four things, we see that worship in community is at the center of their Christian experience. So let's look at those four briefly, shall we? The first way that these Christians devoted themselves to worship in community is through the apostles' teaching. This was a learning church. People hungry to learn more about God's works and his ways. It's a spirit-filled church. And the spirit of God compelled the people of God to submit to the word of God. Now, the centrality of Jesus and the preparation for these new believers to experience new life was at the really the center of the apostles' teaching. We see this again and again and again throughout the New Testament, don't we? And as such, these apostles were eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They received teaching from Jesus directly himself. They were the first to receive the Holy Spirit, that spirit that filled them and inspired them to write down their teachings. And so we're not just talking about the teachers of wise, the teachings of wise men, of intelligent people. We're talking about the teachings of eyewitnesses to Christ. And those teachings are passed down. 
And so today, to be a church that is faithful in its corporate worship is still to be a church that's committed to the apostles' teaching. We have access to these teachings in the New Testament, and so it stands to reason that church and what we do here on Sunday morning should not be a place where you just simply come to get motivational or inspirational messages for living. And I know some people think that and maybe feel that, and, and we all want that. I want more inspiration. I want more motivation. Conversely, it should not be a place where we just simply learn more facts and history and sort of the course of, of that history and what it means for identity. In the middle of that is the apostles' teaching, words from God himself that apply directly to our lives and are transforming in their nature. Now, I know that there is plenty of public discourse about the importance or lack of importance of sermons and preaching. Maybe some of you here even think to yourself, I wonder why our church pays a senior pastor to spend 15 to 20 hours every single week so he could stand up here and talk for 35 to 45 minutes. This question is not new. Some years ago, in the British Weekly, somebody wrote a letter to the editor that was rather provocative in nature. It said this, Dear Sir, it seems ministers feel their sermons are very important and they spend a great deal of time preparing them. I have been to church for nearly 30 years and I have heard approximately 3,000 of these sermons. And to my consternation, I have discovered that I cannot remember a single sermon. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent elsewhere. And for weeks, the editorial responses poured in as people gave their thoughts on the matter of the local church and the importance of corporate worship and the importance or lack thereof of the sermon until the conversation was abruptly ended with this letter. Dear Sir, I have been married for 30 years, and during that time I have eaten 32,850 meals, mostly by my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered that I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death a long time ago. For Christians who are hungry for God and for the things of God, gathered together regularly, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because it feeds us what we need for life and for godliness. It's rooted in the life-changing reality of the gospel of Jesus. And it's a key component of our community worship, which is rooted at the center of our Christian experience. Now, these early Christians devoted themselves to something else. The second aspect of them showing their corporate or community worship as central is found in the fact that they devoted themselves to fellowship. This is a loving church. Now, the word for fellowship in the New Testament is a word you may have heard before. It's the Greek word koinonia. 
And it's really a word that is primarily applied to Christian circles, isn't it? I mean, when Christians use this word in other spheres, they tend to get fairly bizarre looks from people. You don't say, hey, do you guys want to come over today, this afternoon, and have a barbecue, and we can fellowship? To people who don't have any concept of what that means. You don't say, hey, Joe, let's meet at the bar after work and watch the football game, and we'll enjoy some fellowship together. That's a pretty bizarre expression. It's almost uniquely Christian. And if you don't believe me, then why don't this week at work you try it and see the types of responses that you get? Because the idea of fellowship is rooted in this word koinos, which means common. And it expresses something that we share together. What do we share together as Christians? Well, we share God together, very plainly. 1 John 1.3 says, We proclaim to you that we have what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We share together the Holy Spirit of God as well. 2 Corinthians 13.14 says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So fellowship or koinonia is truly a Trinitarian experience. It is our common share as Christians in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I think that phrase, our common share, is really helpful to think about what we have together by way of relationship. Our relationship is one that is not just based on mutual interest, on mutual class or status, on race, on geographical locale. It's based on something much more significant. It's based on our common share in God. So great was Jesus among them that not only was their fellowship based on what they were sharing in, but it was also based on what they were sharing out. They shared in the grace and peace and love of God. They shared out of themselves and the resources. And so Paul uses this idea of collections and offerings and tithes, which of course are rooted in the Old Testament, to share in the work of God. And even the root word for what it means to be generous is the same word koinos or common. And so when we engage in sacrificial giving of support of the gospel ministry of tithes and offerings, like we did just a moment ago, this is an expression of our fellowship together. You see in verse 45 that another way that they provided fellowship was sharing in what was common for all the people around them. Because fellowship among Christians is a profound thing. It's greater than any society, any club or any organization It's spiritual in nature, but it's practical in its results. To have true and lasting fellowship is something that crosses over all boundaries of age and race and class and gender. And that's why this summer, when a couple of our people here from Old North went on a missions trip to Kenya for the very first time with Carol Perkins, who'd been there a number of times, I think like six billion, um, they experienced something they had maybe never experienced before. 
true, genuine, loving relationship with people that they had just met hours ago. Because they had common share in God himself. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. But even more than that, I think that true fellowship among the people of God is most enjoyed in ongoing commitment to each other. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. And we see it elsewhere throughout the New Testament as well. In this way, the church, the local church, really is like a family. Now, have you ever been to a family reunion where your cute little cousin brings her new boyfriend? As a family, you have a common share. You have a common share in your identity, in your relationships, in your family name, in your history. But Justin Bieber over there doesn't have this common share. Now, you get to know him. You make it an effort for him to feel at home. And you even like him. Very much. After all, your family is ever-growing. People are getting married. People have children. It's not just so insular that nobody can break in. But little Justin doesn't have that same type of commitment just yet. He doesn't share in the same things in common that you have. And as the reunion comes to the close, you get to that somewhat awkward moment of the family picture what to do with Justin. And as the family gather, aunts and uncles and cousins and grandkids and grandparents, and everybody gets in, and Justin is kind of standing on the side, and he starts to creep in a little bit towards your cute little cousin, and he's like, until Grandpa steps up. Son? Not yet. Go hold the camera bag. Why? Because the level of commitment doesn't match the relationship. Now, for Christians, as a large family, this is, in many ways, one of the easiest families to break into, isn't it? I mean, the commitment is the most significant in nature. It's you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you pursue God with your life after that. There's a commitment that happens to each other as you do that and as you formalize it. But in many ways, true and lasting fellowship, a common share, only comes among those who are fully committed to God and to each other, not those who spiritually dabble. It's just not quite the same. Because worship in the context of community is rooted at the core of the Christian experience. And so my question for you is this. If you view church, this church, or if you're visiting today, your home church, if you view church as an event in which you jet in and jet out 
on Sunday, without connecting to somebody, anybody, on a relational level, then how can you possibly be experiencing true fellowship? If you view church or community worship as a one-hour experience on Sunday, then I have to say, you're missing out. Because there are so many other opportunities for a deeper and greater fellowship. If you don't engage in consistent giving of your tithes and of your offerings to God, then you aren't fully participating in fellowship. Because fellowship is what we share in and what we share out. It's something we mutually hold on to together. And in the middle of that is this worship as a community. Together, together, we use the word community because it emphasizes togetherness that happens uniquely in the gospel. That's part of, even at the center of our Christian experience. And so I ask you very plainly, are you devoted to that? Are you devoted to these people around you in that? The third and the fourth expressions of devotion that these early Christians had as part of their growing church was the breaking of bread, which we take to be the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. This was a worshiping church. It took place in the temple and at home. It was formal. It was informal. It was joyful and reverent. And they had gladness and sincere hearts. They remembered Jesus' sacrifice for them, and they continued to receive the grace of God that happens when we exercise faith and continually submit to him. They were praying together. This was a dialing into a dependent expression God, we need you and more of you and everything you have to offer to us and we submit to you in that. This is all part of the worshiping community being at the center of their experience. So four things they devoted to. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And I think there's a fifth that's implied here, or at least we see the results of. And that is, this was, in a lot of ways, an evangelistic church. Many were being added to their number. They were not so focused on learning and just caring for each other that there was no room for other people to come in. In fact, they were active. There's a missionary heart among these people, among this church, so much so that, as it says in verse 47, God added to their number daily. God did it. And I think it's interesting that as we hear those who are being saved were added to this church, we recognize he did not add to the church without saving people. And the church wasn't just growing as a social club. It was growing in mutual faith and dependence. It was growing in a common share in the gospel of God. And conversely, he wasn't just saving people without adding them to the church. As if somehow they came to faith in Jesus and now just went to experience God in nature or in their prayer closet or in these all sorts of individualistic ways. In fact, 
To be saved meant that they became part of the church universal, and the expression of that was that they became committed, or we might even say members, of their local church. And listen to the results. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Awe. That's the type of church I want to be. How do you describe awe? Reverence, fear, a sense in which you are taken aback. When I think of awe, I think of the response of my two-year-old daughter, Noelle, to the moon. She went through a phase this last spring and summer where no matter what time of day it was, whenever we went outside, the first thing that she did was to look for the moon. And if the moon was visible, she became speechless. Complete awe at its majesty. I think of the handful of experiences I've had when I've been able to hike in the mountains. And as you get to the top of a mountain and as you look across the valley and see the range of mountains, there's only one word that could possibly come to mind. Wow. I wonder what it's like to be a church where we all, all of us experience awe on a regular basis. And though I don't think that devotion to these four things is a strict prescription for awe, I do think that the idea of being wholly and fully devoted is directly related to the awe that they experience. Because Jesus is the most important person who has done the most important thing and therefore they center their lives, they devote themselves to the pursuit and to the worship of him and God continues to do incredible things in their midst and week in and week out, day in and day out as they share together what they have in common, an overwhelming sense of God's grace and goodness and awe rests upon these people. And only continues to drive what they do even further. What type of church do you want to be? I think as we look at how this text might apply to us, there are a number of different ways that we can explore that. It seems to me that here for these early Christians, there was a level of organic desire for these things. It was rooted in their understanding of the majesty of Jesus. Jesus was the Lord and Christ who did the most important thing. He was the most important person, so they centered their lives on him. Their power was seen in their witness, in their community. 
and then surrounding context. And as I think about what this means for us, I, I can't help but think maybe on multiple levels the type of devotion that we have or that we lack. Statistically, we see in the American church today that a regular attender, which was once considered four times a month, is now considered for sociologists to be two to three times a month because life is busy and because devotion has waned. And so I think that and I read that and I'm convicted by that. And I say to myself, if I, just honestly, if, if, if I do something for two to three hours a month, am I really devoted to it? I think in another level or another application, we can say, we see in this text an implication of commitment to each other that is so often lacking in our churches and, and maybe even in our church. I think the idea of church membership comes up here. And though the New Testament never says you need to become a member of a local church, it's sort of a command from Jesus, when I read and when I hear things like they were devoted to the same things, they had a common share together, this common share in God compelled them to do a number of practical things together, they were all moving in the same direction with the same values, the same hopes, the same dreams, that says to me there was a formal commitment that happened among them. And we call that today, we call that membership. Now, membership is very simply the formalizing of a commitment that we are about the same things and headed toward the same things, and I'm investing in you, and I hope for you to invest in me. And if you're here today and you've been a member of this church for some years, I want you to start thinking about your membership commitment, your privileges and responsibilities as our common share in something. You're devoted to God and devoted to each other, and one of those expressions is membership. Now, if you're here today and maybe you've been hanging out at Old North for some time, you've been participating in the life of the community, and for whatever reason you've decided not to become a member, or at least not yet, Maybe this is just the type of nudge or kick that you need. Because to be invested together in the same things and in each other falls right in line with devotion and common share. And membership is an expression of that reality. Two more thoughts on membership briefly. Number one, if you are considering membership at our church... I want to encourage you, next week starts our next round of get-to-know classes, which is a great way to explore what membership commitment means. And in a world where membership and commitment is continually fading in all types of arenas and organizations and clubs, let it not be said of Christians that they're unwilling to commit to each other. And a great way to explore that is get-to-know. First service next week for subsequent weeks, and you can come to worship here in the second service. Also, along the same lines of membership, there's an encouraging resource I want to push your way. We're today out in the lobby. Uh, this lobby and the lobby outside of Common Grounds is available for you. A little book called what is, a ch- what is a Healthy Church Member? It's 
for some of us, an encouragement. For others of us, a challenge. It's a $3 little book that I have found so helpful to me uh, over the years. And I wanted to make it available for you. So we bought a couple hundred copies. We're selling them at cost just to put good resources in your hands. And I would encourage you, get one for your family and read it with your spouse and think about intentionally engaging in that type of way. Finally, I think another application of this text is there's a very real sense in which these Christians are doing life together. That they're not just brushing shoulders, that they're not just getting together a couple times a year, but no, they're really on the ground, in the raw, doing life together. And there's a challenge for us in an exceedingly busy, exceedingly uh, self-focused American society to be doing life with the people around us as part of God's plan for worship. Because worship in community is the center of the Christian experience. Let me close with this. In December of 1999, Brenda Fox, who was my wife's mother, tragically died in a car accident. She was 46 years old. And Amy and I were dating at the time. It was a couple days after Christmas, and it was the day after her 25th wedding anniversary to Todd. For some months, Todd and Brenda had been saving up for a vacation to celebrate this milestone anniversary. They were planning to go to Hawaii. They had been there 25 years ago as kids who had just gotten married. They always wanted to return, and so they had been saving diligently. But now, with Brenda's passing, the dream of that vacation was lost. Later that spring, Todd decided that he still wanted to go to Hawaii. And since his family was in the middle of the throes of grief, he decided that it would be great if they could all go together. And so he informed Brenda's parents, Cecil and Ruth, that he wanted to take them to Hawaii. And he invited them. He called Amy's younger sister, Tanya, and invited her. He called Amy's older sister, Lisa, and her husband, Josh, and invited them. And then he called Amy and invited her. But what to do with that boyfriend? (laughs) After all, by that time, we were dating pretty seriously. Everyone knew this was most likely headed down the road toward marriage, but something was missing. There wasn't a formal commitment. And Todd just didn't know for sure if it was wise to invest in me that way because there wasn't that type of formal commitment. And so I got left off the plane. And I didn't get to experience in this incredible family dynamic, in a sense, this common experience, common share of the Fox family in Hawaii because the commitment wasn't there. Here's the point. Formalized commitment comes with deeper investment. It comes with security. It comes with safety. It comes with freedom in relationship. A most significant sense of the common share that we have together and an expression that we are doing this together. And so what kind of church do you want to be? I want to be a church where we are devoted to something or some things. 
I want to be a church where we enjoy community worship together, not as a bunch of solo mavericks, but together. I want to be a church where we enjoy commitment, a common share together, young and old, different races, different genders, different classes, different backgrounds. Because worshiping community is the center of our Christian experience. And so let's go down that road together, shall we? Let's commit on a deeper level to each other and to the Lord. And we will ask that along the way, awe will be something that we experience together. Let's pray. Father, we know that a true and genuine awe of you is not something that can be manufactured or produced It's not something that we can force, but it's something that you give your people as you draw near to them. It is my prayer that as we, as the family of believers here at Old North Church, continue to grow in our devotion to you and to the things of you, and as a result to each other, that you would indeed continue to do wonderful, life-changing work among us. Today we celebrate that life-changing work in baptism. And for each baptismal candidate today, we pray, Lord, a very special blessing as they publicly proclaim this inward transformation that you've done in their lives. Encourage us all as we rejoice with them. In Jesus' name, amen.